Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. In the lead up to Easter this year, we've been looking at a series called Famous Last Words. And we're really looking in at the seven sayings of Jesus, the things that He said while He was on the cross when He knew that He was about to die. You see, some last words are completely unintended. And we look back over time and we look at people who have passed away and we have a record of some of those people and their last, their last words. You know, singer Amy Winehouse said, I don't want to die. And that was her famous last words as she was uh, talking to the doctor on the phone and she was found with a blood alcohol level of 0.416 when she had passed away. The King Elvis Presley, his famous last words were, I'm going to the bathroom to read. He said this to his finance manager and he ended up, uh, he died in the bathroom and he died from a complication of uh, liver disease, liver damage, uh, high blood pressure and all of that aggravated by alcohol and drug abuse. Barry White, the famous singer, said uh, his famous last words were, leave me alone, I'm fine. He said that to the nurses and just before he died from complications from diabetes. Actor Paul Walker said, we'll be back in five minutes. And he said that to an engineer as he left the event in a 2005 Porsche Carrera GT, which he then ended up uh, passing away from a tragic accident. Singer Whitney Houston said, I'm going to go see Jesus, want to see Jesus. She said that to her friends as they were at a nightclub and she ended up being found in a bathtub and she'd uh, overdosed from heroin. You see, some last words are completely unintended and they, they don't know that they're going to be their last words. But what we have in the Bible, in the Gospels, is an accurate recording of Jesus' last words. And these last words were completely intentional. They were said on purpose for a purpose. And this series, we've been looking at some of those famous last words and we're going to go into Easter and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday as we follow through on this series. You know, the text that we're looking at today comes from the book of John. So John was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was one of those guys that followed Jesus throughout his ministry for that three-year period as Jesus walked up and down Judea and Galilee, which we now call modern-day Israel. And John was one of those 12 disciples, but he was also not just one of the 12, he was one of the three. He was one of Jesus' closest and tightest friends. He was one of the three that uh, were with Jesus when Jesus was transfigured on the mount. And some people even say that John was Jesus' cousin. So the text we're reading comes from the book of John. And John was the only disciple to be at the cross. And so what we're reading is an eyewitness account of what happened over that time. To set the scene for you, a week earlier, it was Palm Sunday and, or the Passover weekend. And, 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 uh, and Jesus had entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And I don't know if you can picture that moment, but Jesus is entering Jerusalem and there's a crowd there. The entire city of Jerusalem had turned out because they'd heard about all of the great things that Jesus had been doing. They'd heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. They'd heard about the centurion's slave. They'd heard about the feeding of the 5,000 and they thought, this is the Messiah. This is our Saviour. 
And so the crowd and everyone that was in Jerusalem and, and the population of Jerusalem had swelled at that time. The crowd, everyone turned out. And as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, the entire crowd were waving palm fronds over the road and over the path. And Jesus was walked on His donkey and He was going underneath those. And the crowd were laying their jackets on the floor as that donkey walked over Him. And they were yelling out, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. You see, they were celebrating Jesus as a hero. And that's what we celebrate today. We celebrate Palm Sunday. Today is the day that we celebrate that particular moment. We know then that uh, about four or five days later, on Maundy Thursday, uh, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Overnight on the Thursday night, He's tried by the high priests and by Herod and then also by Pontius Pilate. He's whipped, he's beaten, he is scourged. He has the crown of thorns put on his head. And then it's this point that we pick up the text in John chapter 19, verse 16. And if you've got your Bible with you, that's good, that's great. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to follow on the screen behind me. It says, Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place of the skull, in Hebrew known as Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. There they nailed him. Oh, I've read that already. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Hebrew Latin and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading of priests objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to a dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. You know, as I'm reading the Bible, one of the things that I love to do is to be able to put myself in the text, to be able to not only just read it and, and look at the words and study the, the, the words and the theology behind it, but to put myself in the story and look at what is it that Jesus was feeling at that time. You know, Jesus had been beaten and whipped and scourged as we just talked about and he ended up having to carry his cross, which some people say was up to 135 kilograms, up a hill to the place of the skull. Jesus is tired. He's been on trial all night. And they nail him to this wooden cross. The nails pierce his wrists and he gets lifted up on top of this hill. And it's at that point, I wonder, what was Jesus thinking? What was he feeling? Were there fires around and could he smell the, the fires and, 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 the, and the burnt cloths and could he uh, 
Was it dark? Was it like today? Was it a bit cool or was it a bit warmer? I don't know. I wasn't there, so I can't fill in those blanks. One thing I can picture is Jesus as He's standing there on the cross or being hung on that cross as He lifts His head up and He's struggling to breathe because of the way that crucifixion works. It actually ends up suffocating Him. And He's struggling to breathe and He looks up and He sees these centurions gambling over His clothes and He looks over a little bit further and He sees John, His disciple that had followed Him all these years. But it's interesting to note who wasn't there, who wasn't at the cross. You see, Peter was the one that Jesus called the rock. Peter was the one that said, if everyone else leaves you, I will never leave you, Jesus. But Peter was nowhere to be found. You know, these three years that Jesus was walking up and down Judea and Galilee, there were hundreds of people that were watching Him. He fed thousands and thousands of people, but none of them were there. The only person that was there was John, and his mother, Mary, and a couple of her friends. I can picture him as he's standing there with his arms out and he's crucified and his head's hanging against his chest and just as we've got the image behind me. And he lifts up his head and he opens his eyes and he breathes those deep breaths. And he looks down and he sees Mary, his mother. I wonder what's going through his mind as he sees Mary. Is he remembering the time that when he was a child and his brothers and sisters were bullying him maybe and he ran to his mum and his mum was the one that looked after him or, or maybe he fell over and hurt himself and he ran in and there was his mum ready to put on a bandage and ready to look after him. I wonder what memories were going through his mind. I wonder what Mary was thinking as she's looking up at her son on the cross who 33 years ago she had this miracle birth and this Miracle baby, who she'd carried for nine months and then given birth to. I wonder what Mary was thinking as she's watching her son hanging on the cross. You see, we'll never know what was going through Jesus' mind, but all we have is the sayings that were recorded in the Scriptures. And what it says is that Jesus looks down, He sees His mother and speaks these famous last words. Dear woman, here is your son. And to John, here is your mother. This image of Jesus in incredible pain, hanging there on a cross, naked and humiliated and in complete shame. He's been betrayed by his friends. He's been left alone. And this image of Jesus lifting up his head, breathing deeply and not thinking about his pain, not thinking about his betrayal, not thinking about those that had hurt him, but his only concern was the care and welfare of his mother. What sort of person, what sort of love drives a person to push aside their physical pain, to push aside their, their weariness and their, and, their, and their tiredness, to push aside their feelings of hurt and anxiety and brokenness and defeat and to look beyond himself and to see his mother. What is this love? You see, English has one word for love. We have one word for love. And I would say that, you know, we could all identify with that. You know, I love chock chip hot cross buns. Almost as much as Wendy loves Port Power. As much as I love my wife 
and I love my children. That word love causes us so much confusion because how can I love poor power or how can I love chock chip hot muffins but then also God love me. It's all the same. It, it, it provides us with so much confusion. But if we look back in the original text, you see the book was actually written in the language of Greek which thanks to Alexander the Great who had gone through and we use the word Hellenized, or he'd uh, gone through and conquered the known world before the Roman Empire and he'd made the Greek language the common language of the time, much like English is now. If we look back, we know that looking at that word love, we're actually told that there are four words that the Greeks would use for this one word that we call love. There is eros, which is the erotic or the, the lustful love that we feel. There is storge, which is this instinctive love, like a, a parent to a child. But the word love that we would most often refer to would be the word phileo, which is this reciprocated love. It's, it's how people become friends. It's that reciprocated, you know, I love Port Power, you love Port Power. We become friends due to our common interests. It's how we find love. It's how we find people that we may want to spend our life with because we end up meeting someone. We have common interests. We like the same bands. We have the same philosophy on life. We have the same political affiliation. We meet friends and we end up meeting a, a someone that may become our boyfriend or girlfriend and this love is reciprocated and we move forward and that's what marriage is based on. But when we talk about love, I don't know what your experience of love is. Is your experience of love the memory of your dad walking out and leaving you alone and not coming back? Is your experience of love that person who said they loved you but then did something to you that they should never have done? I don't know what your experience of love is this morning, but I want to tell you about God's love. You see, God's love is in a completely different category all on its own. Yeah. You see, in the original text, it's called agape love. You see, God doesn't love. He doesn't merely express His love, but God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, God has a love that is exclusively His own. It flows from His being. It's the essence of who He is. And it isn't phileo love. It isn't a love based on reciprocation. It isn't based on you doing certain things or me meeting a certain criteria. It's agape love. It's otherworldly, from another realm, from another dimension. It's from the essence and core of His being. God is not phileo love. His love for you isn't based on your reciprocation. God is agape. Yeah. And at Easter, it's that agape love that we read about. It's that agape love that drives Jesus to the cross to sacrifice Himself in our place. It's that agape love that when Jesus looks up from the cross and He sees the crowds and He sees John and He sees Mary, it's that agape love that drives Him to put others before Himself. And I believe that as Jesus looked up from the cross, I believe that His gaze shifted up and His gaze crosses time, it crosses space, it crosses millennia 
and His gaze reaches into this room this morning. This loving gaze, this love of God comes from the cross. It comes from His very being and it tells us something about His character, about this agape love. God's love, this agape love is sacrificial. This sacrificial love is demonstrated so clearly at the cross that Jesus went through all of this pain and all of this agony for someone that he didn't even know. He did it for me, who didn't even live in his time and space. I remember the very first day that we brought my daughter home. My oldest daughter is Isla. And we went through the whole pregnancy period. And I remember going, Sarah going into labour and we, Sarah gave birth. And, you know, it's a lot more hard work for the mums than it is for the dads. But I remember that instinctively that day that we brought Isla home from hospital, that very first day, and my heart just beating for her and, and my love for her just being so big and so large. I remember bringing her in and you bring the capsule in from the car and we just sat it on the ground as we walked in through the door of our tiny place in Collinswood that we lived in at the time. And there's Isla, baby Isla. And if you see Isla now, she's so tall, but... At that time, she was just this tiny little baby, sleeping peacefully. You know, new parents would identify with this, that moment when you bring the new baby through the door and they're sleeping beautifully and you look at each other. And I looked at Sarah and said, we did good. We've got this beautiful baby. We've got it sorted out. We're an hour into parenting on our own. And look at them, sleeping beautifully. Nailed it. You know, how many of us as first-time parents, we've read the books We've watched the YouTube videos. We've learnt everything that our parents did wrong and we're not going to do that because, you know, we're going to be much better parents. And then it gets to six o'clock and we sit down for tea and it gets to seven, eight o'clock and then all of a sudden the baby wakes up and it screams and it screams and we do everything and we look at each other and we go, what's wrong? What are we going to do? This baby that screams night after night after night. You know, Isla wasn't the best sleeper at the beginning. And I remember at night she would have, she'd be in her cradle and she would fall asleep by rocking the cradle. First I'd rock her and then so gently put her in the cradle so that not to wake her up. If anyone wakes my child up, you're in trouble. And then I'd rock the cradle ever so gently, slowing down, slowing down. Is she asleep? She's asleep. Then I'd get down on all fours and I'd sneak towards the door because the last thing that you want is for your baby to spot you and go, hey, where are you going? Get back here and rock the cradle some more. So I'd rock the cradle, get down on all fours, sneak out the door, open the door a little bit and it creaks. And then the baby wakes up. Ah, you're kidding. Back, do it all again, rock the baby, put it in the cradle. This went on night after night after night until we got some help. But you know... It was that love for me, for my daughter, that meant, you know, I was a bit annoyed, but I was going to sacrifice my sleep so that she could sleep. You know, Sarah was the one that was feeding at the time and I would say to Sarah, why don't you go to bed? I've got this. You go to bed, I'll take care of the baby. And I would sacrifice my sleep so that Sarah could get a good night's sleep. And that's what parental love does. You know, I'm really happy to sacrifice my sleep for my daughter's sleep. 
But I've got to tell you, I know that I know some of you, I don't know all of you, I'm not sure that I would do the exact same thing for everyone here today. Rock you, put you in a cradle, rock you until you fall asleep. I don't know that I'd do it for you who doesn't know me and I don't know you. I don't know whether I would do it for my enemies. I would, don't know if I would do it for someone who hates me and despises me. But that is the definition of agape love. Not that I would do it for someone who loves me, but that Jesus would come, that He would die, He would suffer this sacrifice and the penalty of our sin, not for someone He loved, but for someone who didn't know Him, but someone who was also considered an enemy to God. This agape love is best demonstrated in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. While we were still separated from God by our sin. And it goes on to say, For since our friendship was restored by the death of His Son while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. You see, we weren't someone who God uh, looked down on and said, oh, this person seems to be reciprocating my love. This person comes to church every Sunday and obviously wants to get to know me. God looked down and He saw a people who were in enmity with Him, who were enemies. And He said, I still love them so much that I'm going to send my son to die for him. 1 John 4.10 says, This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You see, loving sacrificially is something that does to a certain degree come naturally to us. When we have children, when we have people that we love and have formed a filial relational bond with, I, may, I will definitely sacrifice for my daughter and for my wife and for my family. I will sacrifice to a certain degree for my friends, to a lesser degree. For those who know me and I'm in close relationship with, I will sacrifice. You know, for our workers and our co-workers and the people that we spend our days with, we will sacrifice with. But the very definition of agape love isn't that God died for those people that love Him. He died for those people that don't. Loving sacrificially isn't, come, isn't something that comes naturally, but to Jesus, it's in His very character. God is agape and agape is sacrifice. Jesus can't stop being sacrificial any more than I can stop breathing. This agape love, God's love, it stretches across time and space and it reaches to us here in this room in 2018. This love is sacrificial and this love is unconditional. You see, everything in life has a condition attached to it. If you walk out into the cafe after the service and you ask for a mocha soy decaf frappuccino, you having that coffee will be dependent on you paying for it or knowing one of the, one of the baristas and uh, giving them the high sign. You know, you getting here this morning was dependent on you getting in your car, but your car moving was dependent on you having petrol in your car and a battery that works. Everything in life has conditions attached to it. And we attach conditions to our love as well. You know, I was sitting at the doctor's surgery not too long ago and I picked up, you know, Cosmo 
April 1998, which is uh, by far one of the best sources of relational advice that you can get. And Cosmo had this checklist, how to know if he loves you. And I'm just going to read through some of this checklist and maybe it'll be helpful for some of us how to know if he loves you or she loves you. Number one, how many smiling emojis versus frowning emojis has he sent you? Don't get out your phone and check now. Let's do this afterwards. Does he listen to you? How quickly does he respond to your text message? Is it too soon, which makes him maybe a little bit stalkerish? Or is it too far, you know, too long and it means he doesn't care maybe? Are you always number one and he puts you first too often? Or is he always number one and he puts himself first too often? Does he keep secrets? Are you always having to perform for him? Thank you, Cosmo. <laughs> you see, our love, our phileo love just naturally puts checklists and boundaries around it and it says that if you will do this, you will love me. You know, you will, if you love me, then you will do A, B, C, D, E, F and G. If you're married, if you love your wife, you will do the dishes, you will scrub the toilet, you will mow the lawns. You know, if you're dating, you'll probably go a bit above and beyond and you'll pay for tea every time you go out. There's a checklist that we have in our head. And even though I joked about text messages, how many times have you been texting someone? And you know, with phones now, you can see the dot, dot, dot when they're replying. And you text them and immediately it comes up with a dot, dot, dot. And you think, oh, good, they're replying straight away. And then the dot, dot, dot goes away, <laughs> which indicates they put their phone back in their pocket. And you think, if you loved me, if you really loved me, you would have responded to my text message within a required time frame, preferably within 30 seconds to two minutes. We place these boundaries and these, these conditions on our love that we have for each other. And it says that if you do this, then I will love you. And I will do this so that you know you love me. And we have this other checklist on the other side. If you sleep with someone else, if you break my trust by lying to me, if you, whatever it is, we have this other checklist on the other side that says, if you love me, you will do this. And if you love me, you won't do this. You see, one of the things about phileo love versus agape love is that agape love doesn't have those conditions based on it. You see, agape love doesn't have that list of things because we know that Jesus said, even while we were still sinners, He still sent Christ for us. God's love, His agape love, doesn't place conditions on it. It doesn't require us to live a certain way or to uphold a certain standard. God loved us before we had an opportunity to earn it. Yeah. Yeah. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God's love isn't dependent on us achieving something. It isn't dependent on us doing something. In fact, He loves us in spite of us being bad people. Nothing you have done has surprised Him. The lies, the deceit, your failings, your insecurities, your guilt, your shame, none of it is a surprise. God knew all of it in advance and He still chose you. You see, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son 
that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, this is no doubt the most famous Scripture of the Bible. For God so loved the world. And I'm sure that if I asked you, a lot of us could probably recite that. But it's interesting to look at the way that the text is written. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave. It doesn't say, For the world so loved God that He gave. It doesn't say that when you finally get your act together, I will begin to love you. Sometimes we have this picture of God up in heaven and He's walking around His lounge room and bumping into things and just pacing. He's like, come on, when will they get their act together? When will they start living the right way? I've got all this love to give if only they would start acting in the right way. But John 3.16 clearly tells us, for God loved the world that He gave. He didn't wait until He was loved first. He didn't wait until we met a set of conditions, but He gave us His love anyway. God wasn't in heaven waiting for us. He came to earth and put flesh on in the form of Jesus Christ. This is God's love. This is agape love. Not that you have met a series of conditions, but that He loved you as you were and He sent His Son to be sacrificed for you. This love has no boundaries. It is unconditional. It isn't earned. There is no good thing you can do to make Him love you more. And there is no bad thing you can do that will make Him love you less. This love is constant. It's never failing, never ending, and it's never changing. This agape love, God's love, reaches from the cross as Jesus looks up and He lifts His gaze. The sights and sounds and smells around Him. As he lifts his gaze and he looks across and he sees John, he sees Mary, his mother, he sees this crowd that are heckling him and he lifts his eyes and I believe his gaze, his loving gaze goes through time and space and it reaches us here, May, March 25th, 2018, 10am, right here, right now, to you sitting right here. This agape love is sacrificial. This agape love is unconditional and this agape love is life changing. And if the band could come, that would be great. You see, God's love, this agape love, opens the door to salvation and freedom. It frees us from the weight of sin that weighs us down. Once we arrive at that place of understanding that no matter what my guilt or shame, God's love stands strong. No matter who rejects me, God accepts me. No matter who turns on me, God will always be there for me. God's love is sacrificial. God's love is unconditional. When we get a realisation of that, it changes our life forever. When we realise that God doesn't have the checkboxes, God doesn't look at Cosmo 2018 and make sure that He's got all the checkboxes right. God's love is unconditional. You don't have to remember the Valentine's Day card or send the right ratio of happy to sad emojis or respond to his texts in the right amount of time. When we understand that, we begin to live in freedom. We no longer have to occupy our thoughts and our mind with our love for God or with the things that we need to do to meet that, that, that standard. But God's love is extraordinary, extensive, expansive, and it never fails. It's unconditional. doesn't matter what you do in the future. God can't unlove you. John tells us in the book of 1 John 4 verse 8, anybody who does not love does not know God. God is love. 
this scripture, if we dig a little bit deeper, that tells us once we receive this love, once we know this sacrificial, unconditional agape love, it changes us. This love then becomes our nature. And we can't help but love others in the way that God loves us. John goes on to say in that same chapter in verse 11, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And His love is brought to full expression in us. What John is saying is that the more that we love each other with this agape love that Christ has for us, the more complete that agape love becomes in us. Every time that we sacrifice for someone that we don't know, every time we come to church, even though we don't feel like it, we're tired, we've been up all night, every time that we give sacrificially or we love unconditionally, God's love becomes a little bit more complete in us. I would love it if we could stand this morning as we are about to wrap up. I don't know what love looks like to you. I don't know whether someone has hurt you or used love as an excuse to treat you poorly. I don't know if people have hurt you because they've said they've loved you and then done things or left left you behind. I don't know what love looks like to you, but we can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, written by the Apostle Paul, he tells us that God's love is patient. God's love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. God's love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God's love never fails. I believe that the presence of God is here with us this morning and God's love is here with us in this room right now. And I believe that God wants you to know that you are loved. God wants you to know that there is nothing that you can do that will make you lose His love. There is nothing that will make Him stop loving you. I don't know your background. I don't know what led you to the point of coming into this church this morning. But if you came here just to hear this this morning, that you are loved and that God loves you, then that is all you need to hear. God loves you. You know, this love that I've been talking about might seem foreign to you and it may be something that doesn't seem normal. And I would tell you that you're right. It's not normal because it's motivated by God's love. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 